Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being here with me today on the Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. You're my 20th guest, and I'm so glad for you to be here today. How are you? I'm doing fine, Garrett. How about you? I'm doing great. And I want to talk to you about relationship building. Dave, what does relationship building mean to you in a team environment? I was, I was not that long in the Nick environment as, as the, uh, as the uh, statistician. But I did coach softball teams, and a very good one, in fact. And I, I found that to be one of the most enjoy, enjoyable things in my life to be, you know, with these other people. And it was a mixed, it was a mixed team that I coached with men and women. And we, we upset two men's all-star teams. But that was the best, the closest thing I ever had. And that was softball, not baseball. I was one year too old to be a little league baseball player. So I wound up softball instead. Uh, but I think it's wonderful. I, I, I find that to be one of the best parts about sports is, is the opportunity to, to, to be with people and develop relationships. It just, it just makes it so much more fun. And you went to high school in Teaneck, New Jersey. So talk about uh, your upbringing and what relationship building meant and how you found to be the statistician for the New York Knicks. Well, um, my dad worked for the, for the New York Times. He was, a, he, was a, he was one of the editors in the sports department. He wasn't the chief sports editor, but he was next in line. And he always, <laughs> I, I, was pretty, I was pretty close to him as far as sports were concerned. We played tennis and other things together. Uh, and he got me tickets to, to sporting events at Madison Square Garden. And this started when I was 10 years old. So I, I literally did, I'm almost positive. I, I know, I, I, I'm almost positive I saw Nick Games for, for the whole 75 years, except maybe the last couple when I was in South Florida. But, but the idea being that I was affiliated in some way with the NBA for all 75 years. I, that, that's, that's about, you know, it, well, with my dad, I mentioned him, he got me the tickets and then I would go to the games with him or with somebody else in the family. Um, and they also got me a radio. And that was a mistake because they didn't want me to stay up at late night for these games. And, and you know, they even then they play a lot of night games. So I would be late at night with my radio, um, you know, like eight, nine, 10, 10, 11 o'clock. And I was just a, an elementary school kid. And I don't think they knew it because I kept it the sound down. But that was, that was my first contact with the NBA was on that radio and then started attending games. And that was uh, back in the time when the players were not very athletic in those days. I know it's legend. It's not the right thing to say for legend's sake, but the NBA players were not very great athletically up until a 24 second clock. And when you were watching these games and obviously you have the radio that your parents got you and you're staying late up at night to, to listen to these games on the radio, what drew you to the game? Oh, I just loved sports from the beginning. My neighbors didn't really like me very well because I would go out and play my own games. Either that or I would recruit other you know kids and we'd go out and play games. But a lot of times I didn't have anybody else to play with, so I just played my own little game. And I would announce it. And of course, if I was playing baseball, I, I could emulate Mel Allen. And I, I just I just loved it. 
I, I'm not now it's my own games. And the neighbors thought that somebody had a, a radio or TV on too loud. And they found out it was coming from, from my house. And they thought we had my parents, they they complained to my parents, well, your TV's on too loud, your radio's on. It turned out it was just me hollering at like, you know, <laughs> like like some TV announcer. But but boy, it was a fun way to grow up. It was a lot of fun. And how did you and I may have asked this question, but I'm glad that you gave some background of your childhood and how you were drawn to New York Knicks games. But how did you get your position uh, with the New York Knicks? Well, my dad helped me with that, too, because when I graduated from college, I was one of these people who did not have a practical degree. I was going at, originally to be a chemist, but I quit that because I, I hated the lab. So I wound up drifting into English literature and mathematics. But what do you do you know, with, with majors like that? Well, my dad, he knew that I loved sports and he had the connection. So he got me uh, in touch with the New York Knicks and they hired me. Uh, and then after just a very short period of time when the season actually started, it, it just seemed like I was gonna be the, the statistician. You know, it, it, it just was. Um, that was something I could do. I could write and I could do statistics. So that combination resulted in the book 75 and eight or nine other, actually eight other sports books. But yeah, that, that was it. My dad got me to contact, I got the job and then they made me the statistician. And then Will Chamberlain is looking over my shoulder asking me, well, what is my rating? Of course, that to me, that was awesome, especially when I saw those fingers. One of his fingers was like about the biggest palm of my hand. The guy was huge and he was a nice guy. Um, that, that was one of the, one of the things about, about Will. He was just a genuine, nice guy. And when he asked about his rating, what did you tell him? Well, I told him he was on his way to setting a, a, an NBA record because that was his season for 50 points per game. And he also had a lot of rebounds. It was right at the, really at the beginning of his career. And Robertson was a rookie that year. Um, and they were the two who really changed the league. Uh, I know Russell was, was a great player and Pettit. And there were some others. But Robertson and Chamberlain just changed the way things were done. They were so superior to the other players. They were, they were just awesome. Um, they were, first of all, they were much more muscular than most of the athletes at that time. Robertson had a, had a, a linebacker's body and 40 inch vertical. Uh, he could, he could slam dunk two basketballs with one, with one jump. I mean, that was, you know, he had Dominique Wilkins type dunking ability or, or Jordan. He, he was that athletic. And Chamberlain was a world-class quarter miler. Besides doing the, the, he made a, he got frustrated one time with his bad free throw shooting. So he wanted to make sure he made one. And so he stepped back about three steps from the line, ran forward, leaped from behind the free throw line and jammed it. He slam dunked it. And the, and the NBA panicked. It, it took him about two days to, to pass some kind of a new rule. You cannot dunk a free throw. Um, but Robertson and Chamberlain really, um, really intimidated Red Auerbach. Now he had the best team, but he was afraid of those two guys. He didn't, he didn't, he, he really was, was concerned if, if either of those two guys got a great teammate. 
And, and at one point, Robertson had Lucas who was dominating the Celtics until somebody got hurt, until Robertson got hurt again in the season. Um, but, but those guys didn't need many teammates. Now, the Celtics, on the other hand, had strong players at every position. They had something like six or seven Hall of Famers at once. Russell was the best defensive player, but they had a half a dozen great offensive players. They were just a great team. Uh, but but Red Auerbach was afraid of, of Chamberlain and, and, and Robertson because he couldn't do anything with them. The Celtics could usually beat their teams, but he but Auerbach could not handle Chamberlain or Robertson. They were great players. And before we get into more detail about these legendary teams, you know, with the Celtics and the Lakers or all these great giants of the game in the 60s and, you know, late 50s going into the 60s. Talk about the metrics that you created as far as stats and information goes that the NBA started to adopt. Okay. It really began when I was in college. I, I, my sophomore year, the sports editor came up to me one time. He knew I was interested in sports because we had talked. He said, well, why don't you come and join our sports staff and I'll, you know, you can write some stuff. And I, you know, my dad didn't want me to get into that, but I did. And I noticed at a basketball game that the guy who was supposed to be the team's best player, he was an all, an all conference player, was not very good. He was averaging 18 points a game, but he was a gunner. He, every time he touched the ball, he would throw up a shot. He made a low percentage. He didn't rebound. He didn't do anything but he got elected to all conference because nobody did anything at that time except look at scoring average. And whenever the New York Times wanted me to call in a game, you know, just for a paragraph or two, the only things that they asked me were, well, what was the score? Uh, and then who was the high scorer? Um, you know, so nobody else got any publicity except this guy. But I noticed the fact that he didn't seem to, to be that good. So I developed this little system. At that time, they only had, they only kept track of a few statistics. I kept track. I added one point for every point the guy scored, one point for every rebound, one for every assist. They didn't have turnovers, blocks, or steals, and subtracted every missed shot. Uh, they didn't keep minutes played at that time also, which was important. And it, and it worked out that the guy who I thought was a good player really was. And the guy who was, was, scoring all the points, or, or a lot of the points, it went very good at all. And I wrote this up and it wound up um, in a column by the sports columnist for the Wilmington Morning News, I think it was, it was one of, it was the, Wilmington was the nearest big city in Delaware. I went to the University of Delaware. And it winds up in a, you know, this guy's column. And from there, it just seemed like whatever I did and wherever I went, um, there was more and more, Tendex, I call it a Tendex because ultimately it wound up being 10 statistics. Finally, um, it was 15 because you had to have all these little subtle things in there. But uh, originally it was about five. When I called the Tendex, it was 10. And then when I started dividing by things such as game pace, strength of schedule, rate of improvement, things like that, um, it got to be about 15 different things. And with that much input, it was a very accurate measure of who were really the best players because it, it included just about everything. 
And when you had that conversation with Will Chamberlain, were there others who were taking notice of what you created and how did, and maybe you had touched upon this because you dated back to your time in college, how you were really starting to study the game in the way that you did. Did the NBA contact you or did the Knicks contact you? How did it start getting completely adopted? Okay, well, the next step after the, the um, I wasn't very long working for the Knicks. But the next step was in the early 80s, after they had added uh, uh, turnovers, steals, and blocked shots, and they were keeping track of the minutes played of each player, uh, I developed the Tendex system. And, and, and it also it wound up having divisions, as I told you, divided by the players' minutes played and by the, the strength of schedule, which involved the teams, you know. Obviously, a team that's, that's going for 120 points a game is, is paying at a faster pace than one that's averaging 100. So that's a factor because it gives the players more opportunities to add to their rating. Uh, you don't want to compare a player's rating. Well, one time uh, I, I noticed Temple was averaging 50 points a game. There was a Loyola Marymount, I think it was. They were averaging over 100. So Loyola Marymount had two guys that were averaging over 30 points a game. And Temple had this one guy who was averaging about 18. I said, well, this guy's a better player than those two, two Loyola players. And it turned out that the guy was a star in the NBA and the Loyola players never even made it. So just because they had been averaging 30 points really didn't mean anything because they were just running up and down the floor and gunning. Whereas the Temple guys, they were playing the tight, you know, they were slowing everything down. So the guy who was averaging 18 was really the better player. And this kind of thing, I got to, to understand. And by the time I got in, it got into the 1980s, I got a job, first of all, with uh, Basketball Times. I wrote a column for them. But then the really big one was the uh, Sporting News. I got a column with the Sporting News about Tendex, and that drew a lot of attention, a lot of attention. Uh, copycats started writing books, uh, and they didn't know what they were talking about. They, but I couldn't do anything about it because you cannot protect a statistic like you can protect the written word. So they could steal all they wanted and get away with it. But all really it did was to make me that more better known because they were emulating Tendex. It was obvious. And so little by little, I got to the point where the NBA teams were contacting me. They wanted to know, well, who should I draft? Don Nelson wanted to know, well, should I draft Latrell Sprewell? And we talked. And I, we wound up saying, I'm not something, yeah, I think Freewell is going to be good offensively and defensively. Uh, Nelson was bucking his scouts because they didn't want to dress Freewell. Because he just, Nelson was a strong guy. He just said, well, we're going to dress Freewell. I don't care what you guys say. And they did. And he turned out to be a, a really good player. He averaged um, over 20 points a game for most of his career. And um, that was not just 20 because he also played good defense. He was a, he was a really good player. Um, little by little, we talked about Dell Harris. I think he was my favorite coach. And of course, he told me a lot about Moses Malone, who was one of the great all-time rebounders. Um, uh, I got to know a lot of people. Um, Willis Reed offered me a job with the New Jersey Nets while I was living in Florida. And if I had the brains at the time to think, well, we could do this remotely, but I didn't. 
it wasn't done remotely as much with computers then as it is now. They wanted people to be there. They employed them. But I think that if I had had that job, that the New Jersey Nets could have won some titles, not because I was any good, but because Tendex was doing a better job of identifying the greatest players for the draft than the scouts were. And this is, this is proved conclusively by just, well, who did they draft and how did he do? And what was the Tendex rating? Uh, the first draft was 1984. The first one that was rated by Tendex. Well, guess it was, was number one, Michael Jordan. Guess where the scouts put him? Number three. So number two was King Lodgman, right? Um, the scouts actually had him number one. So I don't, that was not as big a deal because he was a great player. He could, he could be number one, but Jordan was better and should have been number one. And the number two guy that scouts had was a guy who was just an unknown center. He never did anything. Um, John Stockton, who was probably the third best player in that draft, was drafted number 16. Right. Um, it was just one thing after another, starting with that particular draft, and everybody started to notice it. Hey, my, friend, my friend Kevin Willis was drafted number 11. He played for the Atlanta Hawks. And he played, he played for 21 years, if I remember right. That is right. correct. And I, and I met Charles Barkley, and I met Michael Jordan. So, you know, uh, three players I can say I've met in, in the 84 draft class, and what a talented draft class, wouldn't you say? That was probably the best of all time. Now, 2003 was great, too, because it had, it had LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. But 1984 had more depth. I mean, a lot of drafts, a Barkley or a Zockton would have been number one, uh, based upon what their career, the way it unfolded. But here they were. Barkley was, I think, number three or four. Stockton was number 16. Um, it was just a great draft, really was. Talk about who was contacting you at that time. You had alluded to it, but please continue those. Yeah, I, I, was, actually, um, I was actually contacted by, I didn't contact them. We had, I had a friend and we were, we were putting together an NBA draft uh, scouting report for, for, the, for, for, the, for the draft and started to get a lot of calls. Uh, wound up working for 16 different teams, a little here and a little there, you know, an assignment here and an assignment there. But 16 of the, at that time, I think there were 30 teams. Uh, it might have been 28 or something. It was the 1980s, check it out. Um, but it was, it was, it was, by that time, the league was pretty good, pretty good size. And most of the teams had at, some, at one time or another contacted me to ask me to do some statistical work for them. So, um, well, beyond that, um, the, the NBA, when it expanded its website, put a, put a, put a Tendex statistics on there to compare the players. It didn't call it Tendex, but it was a Tendex statistic they used to compare the players. The uh, European Major League, the best, best league in Europe, uh, used Tendex as its official statistical source. And the uh, Australian Professional League did the same thing. So Tendex got to be known uh, all over the world. And to be honest about it, Tendex was much better at rating players than I was. I can't say that I was better than the scouts. I could have probably been competitive with them, but the 10 just beat them and beat them and beat them. Um, 
it was really amazing. And I, I looked at it and sometimes, you know, I, I didn't think this guy was that good, but Tim says he is. Turns out, yeah, he is. But I was, it was just, it was really amazing. It was a logical way of doing it. It took a while. I, I could do logic. You know, now statistics, um, uh, if you have a logical way of doing your statistics, they will be accurate. For instance, rebounding. What's, what's the best way to compare rebounders? Um, I think it's just by computing the number of available rebounds in a game and then finding out how many of those were retrieved by a person and then dividing that, or, or at least by the minutes played, because in some cases the player doesn't play 40, he doesn't play 48 minutes, so you have to figure out, well, he plays three quarters of the game. Uh, and the only player in the history of the league who averaged better than 20% uh, of the available rebounds. The average would be 10 because there's, you know, 10, 10 positions on the floor, two for five on each side. But the only player who ever averaged better than 20% of the available rebounds was Dennis Rodman. And when I found that out, I said, that can't be right. It can't be right. It's got to be either Chamberlain or, or Russell because they averaged over 20 a game. Right. But but the thing about Robin was he didn't play as many minutes. He played for a much slower paced team, and he he just got the rebounds. He, he had, they called him the worm. He would just worm his way in there and get him. Uh, and he 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 was a great rebounder. But I I, I didn't believe it. You know, I, it took me a while before. No, I can't be. Yeah, I can't can't be wrong about this one. But I was. Rodman was the greatest rebounder. He. Of the available rebounds, he got the highest percentage. And, and that's the logical way of doing it. And the relationships you built, you know, being known for this expertise in your own way of this getting adopted and, you know, obviously, you know, progressed as the decades of basketball went on. But people always look to you. I mean, were scouts feeling that a little tense around you because maybe coaches you gave the example of Don Nelson reaching out to you uh, being offered a job for the New Jersey Nets I mean you were getting taking a lot of notice but talk about the relationship building aspect of your life in basketball and it's great yeah, that I, coach Del Harris introduced us and I interviewed him and his son who's the assistant GM of the Warriors and what a fine family they are great people well, Dell's my favorite guy. I mean, for 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 for, for all time in the NBA. I know you, and it's it's not just because of basketball. We were, we were Christians, the same religious faith, but Dell was just a great guy, and and he was very helpful. Um, we we didn't argue. We didn't agree about everything, but we didn't argue because we we respected each other a lot. And I think that's um, one of the best parts of what I did was it, it drew it got a lot of respect. Uh and, and that's a point of, you know, well maybe I'm really doing something here, you know, when you start getting respect. And these guys, you know, like Will Chamberlain, I, I mentioned this this guy was a good guy. And he's there he is asking me his rating. And he's the best player in the world and he's averaging amazing. And, and and he was I wasn't even in Philadelphia. I was in New York. But somehow he found out I was doing this and he went out of his way to, to track me down. And he did this more than once before games. Um, 
So that was that was that was really big. The Knicks' best player at that time was Richie Guerin, and Richie became the coach shortly after that. And he did the same thing. Richie would come around. Oh, what's my rating? Well, that year he averaged twenty nine point five points. Not many compared with Will, but a lot compared with a lot of other guys. You know, twenty nine point five. You lead the league in, in with twenty nine point five in a lot of years. Um, Richie was another guy. Uh, he wanted to know what his index rating was. It was so flattering. It really was. And as you advanced in your professional career, you know, I read that you were also in the military. Maybe talk about your relationships that you built in the military. But did you find that your Christian faith and your love of basketball somehow always found its way to overlap and other things that you did in your life? Oh yes, especially with people like Del Harris, but he wasn't the only one. Well, there were there were a lot of overlappings. Um, I, I mentioned to you Rick Barry in Northern New Jersey who wanted to be a Nick, could have led them to numerous titles because they were a good team. But with him, they would have been a great team. Um, and, and and there were others. I mean, um, guys who you know were just na- you're just names, and I got to, got to know them on a first name basis because well this is guys the head coach now and he wants to talk to you and et cetera et cetera. I remember when Dick McGuire, who, who went back even further than I did, uh, and he he was an adult when I was you know when the league was 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 early. I was still a kid, but I remember when he was in the front office of the Knicks and we had a lot of conversations, and uh. It was, it was just, oh, I don't, let me just think, well, Dick Vitale, he was very reachable. Dick was one of those guys, and, and uh, Bill Raftery, he was one of those who helped me um, with creating the old timers, because one of the things he did one time on a show, when, when they had a timeout, I don't remember what it was for, but it might have been an injury or something, and he had something like 10 or 15 minutes to kill, maybe it was, I don't know what it was, but he had a lot of time to kill. So the guy, his partner, started asking him, well, let's talk about some of the greatest players of all time, and I want you to compare them for me, because Bill Raftery, his career in coaching went back into the 20s. So he had actually seen the great players. Uh, before the 20s, I, I, well, Russell was, was strong in the 20s. I would say before the 20s, there was nobody that whose career ended before 1920. Uh, no, 1920, 1960, uh, 1960 is what I'm talking about. Um, I was in my 20s at the time. But the 1960s um, was the first decade that had the real superstars in it. And Robertson and Chamberlain were the first two real superstars. Russell was a superstar at one end of the floor only, and that was the defensive end. He was not, not very good offensively. But John Robertson and Chamberlain were great. Offensively, defensively, athletically, and and they, you know, they were the kind of guys they wanted to beat you, you know, and they could and did. Um, but um, Barry was like that; he could and did. Um, I remember one one interesting fact was that Oscar Robertson, who grades out by the way in the book, slightly ahead of Chamberlain as the best of all time, and right behind Chamberlain are Jordan. And, and LeBron James, those four are clear standouts. There's a big gap after after the fourth, but those four were the all-time greats. 
And Robertson kind of edged ahead, even though he's the least known because his career, prime career was about from 1957 to 66. Um, and people I know, I've never, I've never met one who, who's, who could really judge players before 1970 very well. They're just guessing before that. That's why Bill Russell is so legendary because Red Auerbach was great, a great promoter. Uh, but the people didn't really see Will beating Russell, which he did most of the time, even though the Celtics won the games. And Robertson played for a lousy team. <laughs> but he, he made them a strong team by himself. Uh, he was in 12 All-Star games. Right. And his side won 11 of them. And at that time, they actually tried to win the game. The only time that Roscoe Robertson was on the losing side, he, was, he actually computed out, according to Tendex, as the best player in the game six times out of the 12. The guy was dominant uh, at both ends of the floor. He would put in his 30, 10, and 10 and shut the other guy out. You know, zero points, two assists, four rebounds. He just was dominant. <laughs> and um, Wilt and, and Oscar, um, a lot of people want to argue it. I, it's just 10x shows it. You know, these were the two greatest players. Um, and of course, there is an argument for Jordan and there is an argument for James. Um, but the argument for Russell because he won 11 titles is not valid because Sam Jones, his teammate, won 10. Um, Casey Jones, his teammate, who was a, a very mediocre player, won eight. So are we supposed to say that because Casey Jones won eight and, and Sam Jones won 10 that they were among the greatest players of all time? Yeah. It's just that they had a great team. John Havlicek, he won eight. Well, Hamilton and Jones were great players, and they were teams of Russell. Now, now you have now you have the star of a great team. Um, I guess I'm wandering around now, but go, go ahead, bring it back. No, I think this is I think this is definitely great insight and information. And when you think about your brief but very significant role at a statistician, but you know, 10 decks you created. So yeah. it's amazing. And the conversation with Wilt Chamberlain and the conversations that you have today with players like Rick Barry and Barry is a friend. Barry is a friend. That's great. And and the friendship you have with Del Harris and previous conversations you've had with, you know, Don Nelson. I mean, there's so many players and so many coaches whom you can probably share anecdotes about and your impressions of them and their dominance. I mean, my idol was Michael Jordan and is still is Michael Jordan will forever be Michael Jordan. And I consider him the greatest basketball player of all time. And I know that he has said in public that he doesn't consider himself the greatest ever because he didn't have the benefit of playing guys before him. And when I think about the six championships he won in eight years, to have two three-peats in 90 eras basketball to me is very impressive because if you watch the last dance, perhaps his dynasty could have continued if the Bulls weren't broken up the way they were, or if he maybe had Scottie Pippen early on in his career. Um, he, Scottie Pippen came in 1987, but didn't become an all-star until uh, I believe 1990. So when you think about 
the dominance of a Michael Jordan. And if you, in your opinion, would have put him in a 60s or 70s era of basketball, how dominant would Michael Jordan have been? The same? I think, I think, I I would have loved to have seen seen a Jordan against Robertson matchup. They both had 40 inch verticals. They could both shoot from anywhere on the floor. There were two differences that I thought, and they they showed up on Tendex. Robertson was a man defender who could shut out his opponent. Uh, He shut down Jerry West all the time. Didn't shut him out, but he shut him down all the time. The Lakers got frustrated. And this was when Robertson was on a lousy team. They, they could win 50% of their games or more, but only because of him. They were lousy. Without him, they were winning 20% or 25%. And, uh, and, and Cincinnati, even the people in Cincinnati didn't know Robertson very well. They called him Robinson. Frank Robinson was a, a Cincinnati Red and a great player. I was there covering the Reds a couple of years. And I loved Robinson. He called me high pockets. But to be mistaking him, even though he was a great Hall of Famer for Robertson, was a, was a, t- a terrible miscarriage. I mean, Robertson, in his own right, was definitely, Robinson was a Hall of Famer. Robertson was one of the top four of all time. Um, and you mentioned Jordan. I would have loved to have seen a Jordan-Robertson um, matchup. Uh, the Lakers got frustrated because West was always losing to Robertson, even though they were winning most of the time in the games. And they said, well, how, we're, we're going to have a challenge between Elgin Baylor and Oscar Robertson as the greatest 6'5 player of all of, of, at, up to that time. And Baylor was, looking back, one of the greatest 6'5 players of all time. He was a great player. They had the matchup in the All-Star game. After one period, the West told to Baylor, the coach told Baylor, okay, that's it. <laughs> We're going back. You're going back to power forward. Because Robertson had held him to zero points and put his put up his usual numbers, you know, about eight points, four rebounds, four assists, the, the usual thing. Or more than that for, a, for no, one quarter. Yeah, it would have been about eight points, four rebounds, three assists, or something like that. And Baylor did nothing. They did, they shut him down, they sat him down with a nine-point deficit. He goes back to the power four position. He, he winds up with 20 points for the game, but they never could overcome the nine point deficit that had been incurred when he was playing Robertson because it was such a mismatch. Um, the thing about Robertson was he just was a mismatch. And I think the reason for it was, I don't think Robertson was a greater offensive player than Jordan, but I think he was a greater defensive player. and. The bottom line was um, both of them were among the top three or four offensive players of all time, but Robertson was also among the top three or four defensive players of all time. Um, so I, I think it was Robertson, and I think if you had seen him in his prime, that you would probably agree with me. But I don't know anybody. I don't know a single, single human being that can recall seeing Oscar Robertson in his prime playing playing uh, NBA basketball. He played for a lousy team that was never on TV. Um, it, it, was, it was sad. But he was the one who ultimately got the, the change made whereby a player could leave his 
the team that he was drafted by after three or four years. Originally, it was you get drafted, you're, you're there. You're stuck there for your whole career. They own you, and they don't pay you. Um, at that time, they weren't paying. But as soon as Robertson negotiated this new contract, all of a sudden, the players were making oodles and oodles of money that they weren't making for. Uh, <laughs> demanded everything. He, 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 he was a phenomenal person. His daughter had um, some kind of terrible kidney ailment. And Robertson donated a kidney to her, which, you know, that's, you know, probably most fathers would do that. But they asked Oscar Robertson about it. And he, and he said, he said, well, what man would not do that for, for his own daughter? Right. He was a loving person. These guys were good persons. I think that all four of those great players were great athletes. Uh, LeBron James, he's a great one. And Jordan, a great one. And, and Robertson and Chamberlain. But... Most people cannot remember Chamberlain, and I don't know anybody who could remember Robertson except Bill Raftree. They asked him in this TV interview, well, what about Robertson? Who's, who's, who's a player like Robertson? And he shook his head. He said, I can't answer that because I've never seen anybody like Robertson. He was, he was, he was more. And, and the other guy said, no, look, I'm, you know, you, you're comparing Magic, you're comparing Barry, you're comparing Jordan. After he insisted, no, I've never seen anybody. Like Even that. Will Chamberlain's 100 point game, I was reading that only the fourth quarter had the audio recorded. There is no television that witnessed Will Chamberlain's 100 point game. And I find that remarkable because when you think about, you know, television did exist, you know, in the earliest forms, I believe the fact that that game was not televised, you know, well, I. Robertson. Robertson was hardly ever televised. Or Will, Chamberlain. Will did get, um, he, Will was better known because he played for the bigger markets. He played sure. for Philadelphia, which was a big market. He right. played for the Lakers, a big market. Right. And he, and he played for um, San Francisco, which was somewhere in the middle. But Robertson never played for a team that was anything but a lousy market. He played for Cincinnati and Milwaukee. They were like, they were like um, suburbs compared right. with the others. And they were not going to be on TV because they didn't want to lose money televising something that nobody was going to watch. Right. That was that just made logical sense. I can see that. That was logical. So he never got the exposure to people. People could actually see the guy. I saw right. him hit a baseball. And and when he hit when he hit this ball, they had a little thing in Cincinnati at, at Crosley Field one time. I was covering the Reds, I think I told him. And they had Robertson there and, it, and he was supposed to hit one take one swing or hit, hit the ball one time and he chokes up on the bat and everybody's laughing yeah oh yeah <laughs> he's gonna be well what he did was the first pitch it wasn't a crack it was a click and in baseball that's the sound you want to hear the crack means maybe not a maybe not a solid hit the click was a solid hit and that ball flew this guy had power. He hit the ball 375 feet on a line. If he had gotten under, it would have been 475. And this was, he just took one swing and he choked up on the bat. I mean, this was definitely not his sport, but the man was just a monster athlete. He was a monster athlete. And there are players, you know, in those days who are two or, or three sport athletes or could have been two or three sport athletes. It wasn't common then. They would just pick one sport. But right. you had mentioned covering the the Cincinnati Reds, 
and talk to me about the days that you covered baseball and really want to focus on, again, the relationship building aspect of your time in these sports, covering them and the relationships that you built. But I want to talk to you about. Well, I think it's incidental from the standpoint that you're not telling me, well, I'm going to build this relationship. But when you find out 40, 50 years later that you're still a friend of Rick Barry and you're still more than a friend, Del Harris, close to, to Del Harris. Um, Willis Reed was the guy who called me and asked me if I wanted to be, you know, the, the statistician for the New Jersey Mets. And, and I had seen Willis. Uh, he, he was screwed out of a, a chance to make the, the Olympic team because he and Barry were the best, best players at, at, the, at the camp. But they didn't let either one of them play because they were not politically correct. They were not, they were not making money for the NCAA. Uh, Willis was from a small black school or mo mostly black school. They didn't want some, some, you know, they didn't want, the NCAA didn't want players from small schools that didn't have any you know, major name. Uh, Bill Bradley had a name as a politician. So he was chosen to head of Barry. Barry was a much better player. And in fact, the, the one time that they played, the first time that they played in the NBA head to head, uh, Barry really embarrassed the Knicks because they should have drafted him. And I was so mad when they didn't draft him. Uh, he, he scored something like 56, got something like 15 rebounds and 10 assists. And, and Bradley got about one fourth of that. Um, Bradley not only was not a very good offense player, but he was a terrible defense player. And he was the only reason the Knicks did not have the dominant team of the 19, um, late 1960s, 1960s and the early 1970s, because they had, they had everything else. They had, they had Willis, they had Lucas replacing Willis when he started to slide. They had Busher, they had, they had Walt Fraser, who went late in Robertson's career. Walt was probably a better point guard than Robertson when Robertson retired. But Walt was a great player. But Barry, man, he, he led the both the NBA, the ABA, and the NCAA in scoring. Uh, he, he was a phenomenal player. And how the Knicks could pick Bill Bradley over him, I never know. But, but I, knew, I knew Barry. And my brother-in-law knew Bradley. Dick Davies. And, and he didn't like him very well. Didn't, I, did, uh, I read that Dick Davies played with Bill Bradley on the 1964 Summer Olympics yeah, team. Yeah. And, and Dick... Um, well, actually, Dick played better than Bill. Bill didn't do anything to deserve being on the team, really. But he, he was there before because of his politics and because he was known and he went to Harvard, you know, this, this, this whole thing. But he wasn't a very good player. <laughs> and, and Dick Auerbach wanted him to play for the Celtics because Casey Jones was not a very good player and Cousy was, had retired by the mid-20s. Dick told me later, he said, I couldn't. There wasn't enough money. They couldn't afford it. <laughs> this is my brother-in-law uh, telling me, and by that time, he was, at that time, he was not a rich man. But he said, I, I couldn't afford it. They, he couldn't pay me enough money. So you can see how, how the NBA changed right around that time. Um, and, it, and it really was Chamberlain and Robertson who changed it. And then, of course, Jordan was great in the 90s uh, and then uh, LeBron James has been great pretty much ever since 
Um, but those four, I'll, I'll, I'll just stick to my guns on that, that they're the four best. What are you proud of your relationships? What makes you the most proud to still have relationships with Dell and Rick and, and others you keep in touch with from the sport? Oh, I, it's not a matter of pride so much as it is just, <laughs> it's, it just feels great to be able to converse with somebody. You get to my age, you know, um, I am retired. I, I still write a few books now and then, and I do some promotions for them. But all the communications with Del Harris have been great. And, and Rick Barry, his brother Dennis, Dennis got a knee injury early. He, he had potential like Rick. But he got a very early knee injury. Rick survived his because he was already at the top of the game. So they were patient with him to come back. But boy, a knee injury can really blow up a guy's career in basketball. It really can. So I didn't answer your question. But as far as relationships, no, you did. You, you I, did. I just really, I just really, the thing, I'll never forget the thing with Don Nelson. Um, he was, he's a nice man. I thought, well, you know, he's just one of these Celtic contracts, but no, Don Nelson was nice. He, he sincerely wanted me to help him decide to drift the trail spree well. And um, there were a lot of others. I, I mentioned to you that um, more than half of the NBA coaches, either that or general manager, some, something like that. Um, Pat Williams. Pat Williams is a friend of mine. Um, yeah, you've heard of Pat. I see you're smiling. Of course. I mean, he was the senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. He still is, I think. Maybe, maybe it's maybe he's on the you know kind of halftime now. But, but, and he's written more books than <laughs> I mean, he's over a hundred books. I he, he had a really really good format for his books. What he would do is he could make a superstar like like a Jordan or something like that. We're going to do a whole book. We're going to tell everybody about all all, all you know, everything you. Want to know about you and, and your crew, and that's what he would do. He he would he would either he, he would just pick these people, and they weren't all sports sports people, but uh, great great man. That way, great. But man. he was he, with the Philadelphia 76ers organization, and he wanted you know Orlando to have an NBA team, and really, I think he was part of that tide that spearheaded a team. In I Orlando. think he, I think he probably. That that may be a fact to the factoid that I didn't know, but I sent I sent Pat a book. I don't know if he got it yet or if he, if he read it or not. But some of them, are, I, Rick hasn't got his yet. I sent his to Colorado, and right now he's living in Florida. Now, uh, being myself, having lived in Florida for you know, the last fifty years. I'm curious as to where he lives. Does he live anywhere near me? So we could go out to dinner or lunch or something, but I haven't gotten around to talking about that yet. But he does spend half of his time in Florida, probably now. And then he goes to Colorado, probably summer and, and some snow, snow. I can imagine Rick probably skis. He's in every sport. I, I That was one of the things that I, <laughs> which was amazing about Rick, even after he had the knee injury. He was still really good at sports. He and his sons, or Brent and John Barry, got to play in the NBA as well. Right. And had success. Yes, they did. They were pretty good. There was one of them was a, I would say, try to remember the names. There were several different names. I think there were three altogether. One of them was a better than average NBA player. Uh, the other two were just kind of journeymen. 
but I think one of them was pretty good. And I can't remember which one that was. Brent won the uh, slam dunk competition. I think I think that was the one, Brent. The name and was Bill. When you think about what makes great NBA teams or what makes great Major League Baseball teams, and what are those key factors? You know, what really sets teams? Well, it start. It starts to have a guy like Red Auerbach, who, by the way, I did not know personally, but my brother-in-law Dick knew very well because he played in the same summer camps where Red was kind of offici officiating. And Red always picked Dick as one of his coaches. But I think having a person like like Red uh, to, to be in the background in leadership is really important. In fact, I think probably if I had to pick one guy from the NBA, one non-player in NBA history who had the most impact, it would be Red Armour. A player? I would have to be Robertson because not only was he one of the four greatest, but but he was the one who changed the whole <laughs> the whole monetary system into one where the players were not making any money to where they were just making oh if you're a substitute you're a millionaire. I mean, it, it's it just changed totally. But just to pick a guy, uh, I, I would pick a guy like Red Auerbach. Uh, I think that he. <laughs> had more impact on the game of basketball than anyone other than the great players. When you talk about your faith, your Christian faith, what does your faith mean to you from a relationship building standpoint? I know that you share that with Dell. You know, I'm a man of faith as well. I'm a fellow Christian. And people who are watching this podcast who are of other faiths, relationship building is very much important in all faiths. What is relationship building meant to you in your faith? To be able to connect with somebody like Dell, who's also a man of strong faith, and just others, because you know the basketball yeah. became a global sport. Michael Jordan really helped the NBA become a global sport, and you know Larry, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were the precursors to that before Michael was able to take it global. But going back to just your faith. You know, talk to me about your faith in that context. Um, well, I think I, it just, <laughs> when you're on the phone or talking to somebody who is of your faith, even in basketball, you find yourself, the conversation going, going in the direction of, of your faith, things that you're interested in. And that happened with Pat Williams and it happened with, uh, with Del Harris. It still happens to this day with Del. Um, but that's, it's great to have somebody who, who shares your interest in more than one thing. Because then you're, you really, your conversation is unlimited and your respect for one another builds very rapidly. I mean, it didn't take, didn't take, me, take much time at all to, for, for Dell and I or, or, or Pat and I to, to develop really good relationships. And I haven't even, I have not even, met Pat Williams in person, but I've been on the phone with him a lot. Um, Dell, yeah, um, did a couple times when he was coaching in the NBA. But even then, it, 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 it wasn't that much because I was not one of the guys who was covering the team who would be talking to the coach. Um, 
I was kind of always in the background doing 10 decks or, or you know, draft reports and things like that. But whenever I got a chance to talk to one of these guys who, who shared my, my faith, and I'm sure, I'm sure that this would be true, of, of, like you said, of any faith, but the, the people of the Jewish religion would tend, and I know they do. My dad uh, was surrounded by, by guys who were in the, the, the Jewish faith. And they just, they just tended to, you know, to, to hit it off and to, to, to do really well together. And I think it was true of me and Dell, and also with Pat and some other guys. But those would be the two foremost ones that I remember. But I, I think I mentioned to you that, uh, that Cleveland Buckner, he was one, he was a Nick that, that Will got most of his 100 points on. Because <laughs> Cleveland was just, you know, he wasn't seven feet tall and 300 pounds. He was more like 6'6 six, six and 190. Uh, but he was a nice kid. And I had a lot of fun with him. I had a shooting contest with him one time. But you develop relationships. Um, and it might be just all of a sudden. You might only meet somebody once and develop a relationship. Or you might meet him a whole bunch of times and it won't get past the surface. Uh, at least this is my experience that sometimes you just don't get past the surface, but sometimes it just, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with Cleveland Buckner. Uh, and he was, you know, I don't think he's even known for the fact that he was the victim of Will Chamberlain's 400 points. People don't remember Cleveland Buckner at all, but he was a lot of fun. Cleveland was a lot of fun. Talking about your family and, you know, wife, kids, did they fall in your footsteps? With, did they get inspired by what you did with Tendex? They, they took a lot of interest in it, um, and it, it was. Uh, there could be differences of opinion. I mean, uh, my my son Dan, his opinions don't always agree with mine at all. And uh, <laughs> as far as Tendex is concerned, I think it intrigues him, but I, I I think he would probably shake his head at a lot of the ratings. I know. <laughs> I know he doesn't like James Harden very well, and Tendex really does. Uh, he, of course, this guy is really good. He gets shoot. He he, he he has more assists than most point guards, and a lot of rebounds. But I don't think Dan thinks that much of him. Um, I th I think I don't think it's necessary to agree on everything in order to <laughs> have a good relationship with your with your family. But I'll say this: both both sons, uh, Dan and Mike, uh, have have had physical. Um, I think they followed in my steps in being physical. I mean, by that I mean not necessarily a great athlete, but wanting to. You know, Dan did a lot of running, which, which I did. Uh, he, he wanted to play ball. Of course, I had I had played just about every sport, and Mike. Mike, when he got in the military, he got very physical. I mean, he is a physical guy. So he, he does a lot of <laughs> pumping. And both of them are now over 50. But they, I bet they're both in really good shape. I think Dan does some weightlifting too. Uh, and what did, what, did what did the military, and thank you for your service, for serving our country, what did the military teach you about relationship building and did somehow sports play a part of even your time in the military? Uh, it was more like, well, 
Sogman says you do something, you do it. You know, it was it was a discipline, and I needed it. I I was not a well disciplined person. Um, for my in my youth, uh, I wanted to do everything my way or the highway or not at all. Um, and I, but you get in the military. You know, I wasn't in that long, but I was in long enough for them to let me know who was boss. And I think that was an important part of my life because. As I mentioned, I was not that well disciplined. I think when I kind of came out, uh, I was much more disciplined than when I went in, besides being in pretty good physical condition. Sure. You know, not too many people can say, even of any decade, let alone this one, that Will Chamberlain took an interest in your Tendex system. So when you think about the relationships that you've made along the way in your life, whether it's family, military, professional sports. I know we didn't get a chance to cover the times that you touched upon a little bit, but the extent of your time covering Major League Baseball, and we have some time left. I would love to talk to you about that. But what do you point to in your life and say to yourself, well, not only did that impact me, but I feel like this single moment is what changed everything for me to continue on my journey and progress each day to the goals that you ultimately were setting for yourself. And that when was it so clear to you that, hey, this is this is what was meant for me. This was my destiny. I think, I think looking back, there were there were more than one thing, but the biggest thing of all was when I was getting ready to retire. And this would have been, let's see, about 16 years ago, 2007. Uh, so yeah, be about 15 years ago. Um, I'm reading in the Bible, Isaiah. I came to 6, 8, Isaiah 6, 8. And, and the prophet, here's God talking among himself, you know, the, the triune God. You, you get the impression that, you know, here's the Father, Son, and Spirit having a conversation. And and they actually quote it. Isaiah quotes them in his book. And they're saying, well, who, who should we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah, and I'm sure he did this very timidly. He said, well, here am I, send me. And they did. And he became a great prophet. And the rest of that book is a result of that little prayer. They did send him before God the Father, Son, and Spirit being one God, yet three in one, sent him. And I I sat there for a minute, having read that part a lot of times. But this particular time, I said, wait a minute. Uh, and I don't want to do this. So I did. I said, I said, here am I, send me. And I know I was timid about it. I didn't have the deep voice. I, you know, this is a commitment to the living God. And he's pretty awesome. And the next day, I started to understand uh, biblical prophecy. And it went from, you know, I told you I've written some sport books. Well, most of those were written while I was, before I was retired. Well, for the last 16 years, I've been writing uh, religion books, especially about the end time, which uh, Isaiah prophesied. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied, and even in the Old Testament, there's end time prophecies. 
And I think this was the biggest thing that happened in my life because uh, as much as I love sports, they're not going to change the world. Um, I have found that since I prayed that prayer, I have had a lot of opportunities to be on interviews like this one, only talking not about sports, but about the end time. And just to make a long story short, a lot of people today are afraid of what we're facing. And, and, and God said, actually it was Jesus in his sermon. He basically said, after they asked him, what is gonna be the sign of your return? He's talking about the end time. And among the things that he says are, don't be afraid. And now we've got a situation where there's all kinds of fear mongering going on. And one of the things that Jesus said was, the terrorists will be terrified. That's gonna happen during the end time. He made all kinds of great promises about the blessings that, that, that can accrue, even from suffering. Suffer for his sake, and boy, you're gonna have rewards. Maybe not in this world, but in the next one. So I would say that that moment when I made that prayerful commitment, which has led to a, a lot of opportunities to, to share, was probably the most important in my life because since that time, God has, has he, he's really used me to be helpful to um, some other people. And you're talking about relationships, well, those relationships are probably the best because they can endure forever. You know, that this year, they can, that can endure forever. My wife, wow, was she, was she a great one. I can tell you all kinds of great things about her. She, at the end of her life, she was smiling all the time, except for one time, um, a couple of days before she died, she was surrounded. And one of the pastors of the church was visiting, visiting. He said, well, well you, know, you don't look too good. Um, or I don't think he said it. Well, he, he was more diplomatic than that, but he wanted to find out what was wrong. And, and, and she said, well, I'm really disappointed. Um, she thought that morning she was going to be waking up in heaven. She didn't think she was going to live through the night. So when she found herself still here, she was disappointed. She wanted to be here. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> that, I, that I could reach that point in my life where, where I could really, you know, and, and she was really feeling awful. She was near the end. But boy, she was, she loved everything. She loved the cat. She loved the daughter-in-law, you know, we had problems with. Um, and it told her that. And since that time, the last four years, I've, I've had a great relationship with that daughter-in-law. And I know it's because Joan just flat out told her. The two days before she died, she said, I love you. And the daughter-in-law just melted. That's the greatest relationship. And really, the relationship with God is the strongest relationship that we fellow Christians have. And, and people, their respective faiths outside of Christianity, whether it's the, you know, Judaism, yeah. whether it's people who are the Muslim faith or Buddhism or, you know, other faiths, you know, they have their beliefs and it's all about relationship building in each one of our faiths. And I think that this, in the Christian faith, the strongest relationship that we have is with God. And he's the center of, you know, marriages. He's the center of everything that we do. And 
the fact that you had that experience with your wife who was, you know, before she passed on to heaven, it probably, I'm sure, most likely, definitely, whatever word that you would feel comfortable with, put everything in your life in perspective, even the sports, because that was number one. That was number one. Oh, but I would say that the prayer, that prayer of Isaiah 6 8, uh, personally speaking, you know, the, the end of Joan's life was great. But as far as having my having an opportunity to be a blessing to others, uh, that prayer of Isaiah, Jeremiah sent me, that was the start of my opportunities to, to share with others some of the things that God was showing me. And it was God, it was the Holy Spirit who was showing me because I had never noticed it before. I prayed the prayer and then the Holy Spirit says, okay, here you go. You ask it for it, here it is. Ask and you shall receive. You can you seek, seek and you shall find. Um, knock and it will be open for you. And I experienced that. And, you know, whether it's your strong faith in God, whether it's your professional career, the relationships that you made professionally and personally, you're the epitome of this podcast, such as my other guests, like my other guests who tell their life story and provide their anecdotes of, you know, who impacted their life and how relationship building each steps of their journey shaped them to who they are. And everybody always talks about team. Everybody always talks about what it takes to have a great team, being selfless along the way, thinking of others before yourself, the commitment, the devotion, the focus, you know, buying into one message, staying on message. Do you have any final words about relationship building, anything that we probably haven't touched upon? Well, I, I wasn't really a member of a team, so to speak, but I really do feel uh, the camaraderie with people like Pat Williams and Dale Harris that feel like it, Rick Barry and, and, and some of the others. Um, I really feel like I was a member of, of a team. It's more than just the human race, when you have good relationships with, with someone, um, you, you can have your own little two-man team. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, because I wasn't on a major league at a major league team in any sport, but I knew a lot of people. Um, and, 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 uh, well, that was, that was probably the best part of it. Covering, I covered the Shula Dolphins for, for, um, several years when they were winning the Super Bowls. You know, the only reason why they finally lost one was that their best player got hurt. Dick Anderson, who had been the NFL's player of the year, gets hurt in a Pro Bowl game. And after that, the people started not wanting to play in those those games and it was because of what happened at the games um but shula was a great guy um dick anderson was a great guy um you find them in all sports uh in that team howard schnellenberger who went on to coach the university of miami hurricanes into position to win national championships he was one of the coaches on that team uh, that was a very strong, uh, very strong team feeling. Uh, probably I had more 
team feeling with that team because my sons and I had season tickets with with the, the Hurricanes. So, you know, and we all want, wanted to see the Dolphin games. Um, so that was a real strong team feeling I had with, with them, more so than with even in basketball. Basketball, it was always professional. They wanted to know what, what Tendex meant to them. Uh, but with, with, with uh, guys like Shula, he was a good guy. And he would actually talk to me. You know, <laughs> a lot of coaches, they don't want to talk to God, you know. <laughs> there are other things to do. They don't want to talk to the media. But sure would. And we would talk football. One time, he, he, I recommended a guy. And he actually uh, gave him a trial with the team. So, you know, um, there were good memories in, in every aspect of, of my life. The best ones would, would be uh, with my wife, of course. But, but uh the Isaiah 6 8, that, that was the Lord really opening doors for me at an old age. I'm thinking, well, I'm retiring. We're going to have a ball. We're going to go on the beach. We're going to do this. Because we were, we were still living in Florida. At that time, we were in South Florida. And then, oh, no, <laughs> it's going to be different from now on. And it has been. The last 16 years have been really different. Well, if I, if I can connect you with anybody the first person that comes to mind is the first guest of my podcast who is Lou Holtz and we talked about him offline and strong man of faith and yes. devout Catholic and you know all the teams he coached and all the people he made major differences in their lives and being a presidential medal of freedom winner and hall of fame college football coach and I worked with him at ESPN and you know, I would love to connect him with you. He lives in or the Orlando area like I do. Well, I think, I you, would, I think I you would enjoy a conversation with him. Yeah, I, I live in the area also. I, just, I was wondering where Barry lived in this area now. But Lou was coaching Notre Dame when my sons and I had season tickets to the Miami Hurricanes. And Miami, um, most of the time, beat Notre Dame. And the one time... That they lost it was on a mistake an officiating mistake which the ncaa apologized for but did not change the outcome of the game because they wanted notre dame to win notre dame was a big money maker for them university of Miami was not that they didn't like the university of Miami. but lou holtz i remember when he was uh bringing the team into the orange bowl and the noise was just deafening it was a that was a place what it kind of rattled and wobbled it was old and the, the, you didn't have to stamp your feet. Uh, you just sh made this rumbling noise. It would rumble through the place. And I remember one time <laughs> to get pulse. And by the way, I, I did I did know that that there was a Christian and, and very strong leader. But I remember one time he seeing, seeing pulse looking kind of looking up and around. And he looked a little bit nervous, afraid maybe even <laughs> because it was such an intimidating atmosphere. And I'm sure that when you went on the road, you got the same thing on the other side. But that was part of it. But I remember Lou. I, I do. I, did, I never met him, but I felt, you know, and my two sons and I felt he was he was the enemy. You know, he Notre Dame was the enemy to UM. We were rooting for UM, and you take sides. Even though later on you find, well, I'd really like to meet Lou Holtz because I, I've, I've heard that he's a great 
person. I'd really like to talk to him. And I would, but I'm just telling you now how it was uh, back when Lou was coaching the Notre Dame team. He, it was not friendly when he came to the Orange Bowl. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was a, so much fun. Going to those games was so much fun. And, and it was always competitive. Those were two, every year, those were two of the competitive, competitive team, most competitive teams in the country for about, I would say, about 20 years. They were just two of the best. And of course, I don't even think about Florida State because they had a really corrupt administration. But Notre Dame did not, and, and Miami did not. They, they did things right, and they won. And it was exciting to watch the two of them go out usually. Well, I want to thank you for this very insightful, this very informative podcast and episode with you and really learned a lot, really enjoyed the time with you. Your life has always been a series of exciting conversations. And I think it all started with your parents buying you that radio and getting to stay yeah. up late at night and listening <laughs> to all those NBA games. And then your dad helping you become a statistician with the Knicks. And although that it was a very short lived tenure with the Knicks, uh, Will Chamberlain walking up to you asking how the 10 deck system worked. And yeah. then you started seeing the NBA adopt what you created and all the relationships that you made in the NBA and being a journalist and serving in the military and the relationship that you've had with your wife and the influence that you've had on so many people. We can talk for hours about what you've meant to the game of basketball, what you've meant to a lot of people, what your faith has meant to you. And when I write the chapter on you for my book, definitely want to ask additional questions when they come to mind complete the chapter but thank you so much for your insight about relationship building your insight very profound it speaks volumes because to have the relationships that you have over a long period and you still have them speaks to your character and your reputation and people identify with you in a lot of ways and it brings them a lot of joy and that's why they still stay in touch with you. Well, I certainly would like to do that. Just contact me anytime. But leave your, leave your phone number with me. And I'll, if I need to call you, I'll, I'll do it right away. Well, thank you so much, Dave. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Wave Capital Guest Speaker Series on relationship building in a team environment. Happy New Year to you. God bless. And look forward to staying in contact with you soon. And thanks again for Del Harris introducing us. Yeah. I really appreciate it. That was a great guy. Well, it's good talking to you, Gary. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Take care and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.